Well, thank you for joining us for worship on this Sunday online. Look forward to seeing you in person pretty soon. I'm Harold, one of the pastors. It's my joy to bring to you God's word. We've been going through the gospel of Mark. We're at Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17 today. So picking up at verse 13, we're going to look at the political enemies of Jesus, starting at verse 13. And they, the enemies of Jesus, sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is God's word. I'm sure you've heard the saying around the holidays, don't talk about religion or politics. Well, today we get to talk about both. Yay. Because Jesus talks about both. Here, the enemies of Jesus, I'm sure they orchestrated it, rehearsed it, have been plotting and planning to take this man down. For many, many chapters on end to the Gospel of Mark. Here, they seek to trap him with a question. Three parts, as usual for me. The trap question. Second, the transcendent answer of Jesus. Third, transforming politics. First, the trap question. Second, the transcendent answer. Third, how Jesus transforms politics. First, the question. The question. Of course, the enemies are trying to set him up. They use flattery. We know that you are true. You don't care about people's opinions. They almost kind of have to wait because you know they're going to unload something here. It's a gotcha question. It's a completely explosive loaded question. It's a trap. And they uh, are not asking Jesus about taxes in general to Caesar. Uh, Most likely the commentators tell us because Jesus asked to uh, show them a denarius later on. They are asking him a question about a particular tax, a specific tax. Uh, It was called the imperial poll tax or the head tax. Look at verse 14 as they ask this question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? This is a small, specific tax, but it was most despised because it was issued simply for the privilege of living under the Roman Empire. This is a tax that signifies that you are subject to Caesar. And when this tax was put into place, about 25 years before the arrival of Jesus Christ, there was an armed revolt that broke out led by Judas the Galilean And Judas, 25 years previous to Jesus, called all Jews to refuse to pay this tax. He actually, with an armed band, went into the temple, cleansed it out militarily, literally, getting rid of all the Romans, the Gentiles, and the foreigners. And his rhetoric of Judas the Galilean went something like this. 
It's time that we take over in the name of God. We need to bring in the kingdom of God by overthrowing the entire system with all of its oppression, injustices, and uncleanness. Let's take it into our own hands and let's bring in the kingdom of God. It's our time. Does this sound any familiar today? Well, in history, Judas the Galilean was arrested and executed for insurrection against the Roman Empire. Now, you might better understand why the enemies of Jesus ask him this particular question about that specific small tax. After all, Jesus himself has been proclaiming, describing, promising the kingdom of God has come and is coming in its fullness. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus has also cleansed the temple because it has degenerated into a corrupt religious business. And this is Maybe in large part why his enemies want to get rid of him. Because Jesus is so bad for religious business. So his enemies figured by lobbing this question into his lap in wide open public. That if Jesus says, yes, go ahead and pay the tax to Caesar. He would be seen as a total sellout. A cowardly co-conspirator with the Romans. Or if he says, refuse to pay the tax, don't pay the tax, he's going to sound an awful like Judas the Galilean, inciting an open revolt against the empire. So both options are really bad. The two choices that his enemies thought they had pigeonholed Jesus into were A, if you say pay the tax, you are a traitor to be despised by your own people. Oh, you must be one of those kinds of leaders that just says, oh, play along. The status quo is always good. Just seek what is comfortable. Seek what is safe. And he's going to lose a lot of credibility. Lose respect. Maybe lose some of his most ardent followers. Choice B. The second option was he would be seen as a criminal. Surely to be arrested. Surely to be tried. Most likely executed because the Roman Empire never took the crime of insurrection lightly. So what a trap. That was the trap. Now we get to the transcendent answer. Verse 17 tells us, because of the answer that Jesus offered, they all marveled at him. This is his own enemies. They thought, finally, we got him. But of course, they ended up with their minds blown, deeply embarrassed, most likely, humbled, and maybe even defeated, which only intensified their envy and hostility against Jesus, the Galilean. This was customary for Jesus Christ when asked difficult, seemingly impossible questions. Jesus, uh, as usual, would offer answers that defied human categories, he would never be boxed in. And maybe this is the most famous occasion of them all, where he answers in such a way that made people marvel. I mean, I don't know how many politicians or rulers you know that when they get a toxic, loaded, uh, seemingly no-win type of question Uh, What do they do with that? They deflect it. 
completely avoid it, just answer another question in their own minds. They don't give you a clear answer. But not so with Jesus here. Jesus actually offers a very clear answer, but it's an answer that is transcendent. Of course, you know the author and former pastor, Tim Keller, he frames this masterfully, that the answer of Jesus refuses three things, political simplicity, political complacency, last but not least, political primacy. The answer of Jesus refuses all three. First, political simplicity. Again, look at verse 14. Notice how his enemies ask the question twice. They rephrase it at the end because they want to reduce it down to a yes or no. Jesus, we're just going to phrase the question, put you into a corner. So you have to pick one side or the other. This is a false dilemma, however. There are plenty of times that Jesus offers a clear and simple yes or no. Namely, how does anyone get into a love relationship with God? Gives you a very, very clear route. Only through belief and worship and love of his son, Jesus Christ. But when he has asked about our relationship with the state, public citizens, or more in particular, what should you do with taxes that are owed to the state? Jesus does not give a simple yes or no, because it's not an either or situation. It's a both and. Please make no mistake. Jesus is not afraid of coming down on one side or the other. It's just that he doesn't give a simple answer here because this situation is not simplistic. It's complex. And both and happens to be appropriate and right. Now I'm just going to venture into these little waters that there is a very popular stereotype when it comes to evangelical Christians in our country today, if you didn't know. And it's a political stereotype. Again, stereotypes have a lot of general commonalities and themes. There are exceptions, yes. But here is the political stereotype of evangelical Christians. And I believe gravely it is a very poor witness where Christian people become so conclusive about things that the Bible itself is not even conclusive about. Or Christian people do what Jesus himself didn't do. For instance, saying one party, one candidate, one person, one platform, therefore only one vote or decision can be made that truly honors God. When in actuality, based upon deep biblical, theological, and contextual analysis, There are a lot of different considerations and decisions that can be made that still honor God. For example, in the 2016 election between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, some 80 plus percent of white evangelicals voted for Trump. And I understand that percentage did not go down too far with the 2020 election of Trump versus Biden. Now, at least back in 2016, do you know the percentage of black evangelical Christians? The percentage of black evangelicals who voted for the other candidate, Hillary Clinton? What would you guess it would be? 80 plus white evangelicals for Trump. 
How many of our brothers and sisters who are black voted for Clinton? 93%. So it's not even close. The divide, is it not? Why do I bring this out? Why do I bring this out? Why is this a glaring, divisive reality that we must reckon with? Are you going to say it's that one group of evangelicals knows and understands and applies the Bible better than the other? Are you going to say, well, for certain, you know, if you just think about single issues like abortion, you've got to only vote this way, but you have to understand there's other single issues that might be as important, if not more important, like supremacy or racism. You see, in any case, this issue is not so simple. It's actually very complex. And fundamentalists on either side of the aisle, or even fundamentalists in Christian evangelicalism, actually don't want room for tensions and disagreements. We just want everyone to agree and come down on one side. We want to keep it simplistic. Of course, you see this all over online. We're having a field day online of giving such maybe biased, unfair summaries of positions or policies, and you get these little bite-sized things, and then you walk away and think, oh, I really understood that, therefore I'm going to conclude this. Now, I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's intelligent. Definitely it's not winsome, but it actually might be insulting to whoever is on the other side, let alone our collective witness as his church. To make matters worse, Christian people have been very guilty of name-calling and labeling and judging and binding consciences of anyone who dares to disagree. Oh yes, both ways, equally both ways. You just cancel the other side out. Now I just, on this note, I want to assure you that the leaders here at CCSC, at least the leaders I know, our pastors and staff in session, I mean, and our deacons and my goodness, we err on the side of being thoughtful and thorough. We really err on that side. But the answer here, Jesus gave, refuses political simplicity. Second, it refuses political complacency. Okay, Jesus is asked, should we pay this tax as easy or not? It's not like Jesus just avoids it, evades it, runs away and, 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 and hides he actually tells us to do something with it. Not nothing. He gives us clear and specific instruction. Look at what he did. He says, bring me a denarius. Okay, verse 15, we read. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And you see a picture of one. During Jesus' time. And Jesus then asks, whose image is on it and whose inscription? Look at that coin. And of course, the image on it was Caesar's. And the inscription read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And then what does Jesus go on to say after that? Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. And to God, that which is God's. 
You see, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The things with his image imprinted on it. I mean, all this material wealth and coins in Jesus' day were literally minted from his, his wealth, his treasury. So give to Caesar the things that are already Caesar's. They belong to him. This includes the pizza brand today, which I'm not a huge fan of. I would gladly give that back to Caesar. But in any case, Jesus instructs, yes, you ought to give to Caesar that which is already his. It belongs to him. Jesus refuses political simplicity. He refuses political complacency. Third, he refuses political primacy. Political primacy. A brilliant author, C.S. Lewis, wrote a book entitled The Screwtape Letters. In it, Screwtape is an uncle demon instructing his nephew, Wormwood, and they are both set on wrecking the faith of Christian people. And Screwtape there instructs his nephew and tells him plainly, it really doesn't matter which political side people choose, as long as that side becomes all too important to them. Let me quote from C.S. Lewis through the character of Screwtape. Quote, let him begin by treating the patriotism or the pacifism as a part of his religion. Okay, this was the the debate in C.S. Lewis's day. Then let him, under the influence of partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage at which the religion becomes merely part of the cause in which Christianity is viewed chiefly because of the excellent arguments it can produce in favor of the British war effort or of pacifism. Once you have made the world an end and faith a means, you have almost won your man. And it makes very little difference what kind of worldly end he is pursuing. Do you hear that? Jesus refuses political primacy. Because once your partisanship, once your political side becomes a religion to you, then Jesus is no longer your king. See, so here's how Jesus not only escapes the trap, he transcends the trap. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And what is God's? What rightfully belongs to God? You. Me. Because his image is imprinted upon us. God deserves our ultimate and deepest and unconditional allegiance. That can never be given away to Caesar or any other king or president or ruler or even spouse or best friend. Give to God that which is God's, for that is his. This breaks all political simplicity, complacency, and primacy. All right, we get to the third part transforming politics. How does Jesus transform it? You notice here in our passage that the two groups that were sent in verse 13 were some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him, Jesus, in his talk. 
And the reason why the Herodians and Pharisees tacked him against Jesus is because the approach of Jesus threatens theirs. Let's take, for example, the Herodians. They believed that the best chance for Israel's survival was to support King Herod, who happened to have been among the worst, nastiest kings representing the Roman Empire. But the Herodians' political philosophy, and of course it was of primary importance to them, this is the way we got to go. You see, they were progressives. The The Herodians were progressives in their time. The Pharisees, the Pharisees. You might know much more about them. They were the conservatives of their day. They were calling for a return to traditional moral values. Now, these two groups, once long-time bitter enemies, hardly nothing in common. According to Mark chapter 3, verse 16, they actually become friends because now they have a new common mission. It's to destroy Jesus, to get rid of him. But you see, Jesus Christ can't be co-opted by the right or the left. Jesus Christ will not become a mascot or use or an agent or spokesperson or a fundraiser or an endorser for conservative or progressive politics. He just won't fit in. Because the traditional approach taken up by the Pharisees and pushed by the Pharisees, even to this day, is moral conformity. Moral conformity. Let's let all the moral law-abiding people in. Keep the bad, immoral people out. You must live a law-abiding life. The progressive approach embodied by the Herodians is not, of course, of moral conformity. It's of self-discovery. You get to choose what's right and wrong for you and then live that through. Be true to yourself. Self-discovery and authenticity. So, People who are like you in this respect, open-minded, current and with the times, let them in. But those traditional bigots, you've got to make sure you keep them out. Now you see again, both groups, both types of backgrounds are actually were once so opposed to one another. <laughs> they read different books. If they had news channels, they would definitely read and watch and listen to different news channels. Different Twitter feeds. They would go into different clubhouses online. They would have different types of gatherings with different themes. They might even belong to different churches. Until they unite over hating someone else even more. Both the Herodians and the Pharisees, both the progressives and the conservatives in Jesus' day, actually opposed and hated the gospel message and approach of Jesus all the more. Because in both moral conformity or self-discovery, you think you're saving yourself and you can save the world based upon your work. It's built on self-righteousness. Whereas when Jesus came along time and time and time again, he says, I'm going to let the broken in. The ones who aren't conforming, the ones who have failed, the ones who may not even be current. I'm going to let the hungry and the poor and the needy, those who are sick, those who are sinful, you all can come in while the self-righteous stay out. Look at Jesus again. Look at him. 
how he transforms politics and everything. Bring me a denarius, bring me a coin. And as he shows that coin, I think he is intentionally contrasting himself with the image of Caesar on that coin. You see, while King Caesar literally had everything at his disposal, the coins, military forces, political machinery, prestige, power, fame. Why is it, though, that the kingdom of Jesus that he brings has lasted and will reign from everlasting to everlasting, and it will actually rule over all? How can this be? How so that the kingdom of Jesus is going to supersede and rule them all? It's because Jesus does something politics can never do. What am I talking about here? Okay, Jesus does something that politicians can never do. Jesus did not come down for cosmetic change. He did not come down to like just rearrange the furniture, so to speak. He didn't come down just to switch parties or switch out the main characters, the main rulers, even the kings and emperors and presidents. Do you know what Jesus actually came down to do? He came to transform people inside out. You see, politicians get power and authority when they are elected. Jesus Christ got his when he was executed. Jesus Christ gets his when he was executed on a cross. My friends, this changes people. This changes the entire system. When Jesus transfers you out of the kingdom, the domain, the control, the obsession, the idolatry of this world into his own, power and wealth and comfort and recognition no longer own you. When Jesus takes you out of that kingdom and he puts you into his own kingdom, you actually turn around and you seek to empower, enrich, comfort and recognize and elevate the least of these, even when it does not go well with you. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, where Apostle Paul announces, He, Jesus Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Oh, so we're not talking about a cosmetic change. We're not talking about a change just on the surface. Now we're talking about a revolution of revolutions. One commentator says this revolution revolutionizes them all. A total transfer of kingdoms. <laughs> Who could live like this? Really, how does anyone become like this? <laughs> Where power and wealth and comfort and recognition is no longer the things you seek, but the things you actually want to give away? How does anyone become like that? Here's how. Oh, please, please pay attention. You have to first realize the enemy to Jesus that lies in you. You have to see and realize the enmity and the enemy that you and I are to Jesus. It's just what kind, what kind of enemy have you been? You see, because as long as you and I try to save ourselves and save the whole world on our own, you are getting in the way of Jesus doing it. And once God helps you to see the enemy that is in here against him, 
how much in the deepest corners of my heart I actually want to just be rid of him. I want to destroy him. I want him out of my life. And once you see that, I want you to then see and receive how Jesus came to win you over. What he did to make friendship out of enmity. Back to Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 to 22. Here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Starting at verse 19. For in him, again Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. See and realize. Repent, that means just turn and receive what Jesus has done to win you over. Most practically, Hopefully I didn't mislead you with the title, political enemies of Jesus. Most practically, how does this, if at all, affect you politically? Well, if Jesus indeed transfers you out of this kingdom into his own kingdom, how can it not? How can it not? So if you once preferred being simplistic, because that's easy, it's nice and neat, it's manageable, Maybe Jesus moves you along to become a lot more researched, okay with tension, become more nuanced. If you were someone complacent, you just ignored, indifferent to all this stuff, especially in the state of California, it doesn't matter what my vote, it's only going to go one way. Well, I'm not quite sure if that's the best way to go. Jesus will make you more of an involved citizen. Maybe you might even become uh, become more radical. Because again, your life is not about what you can get for yourself. This is one of the ways that you seek to love and serve your neighbor. And for those of you who might already have been quite, quite partisan, very passionate, very devoted. And if you're honest with yourself, you feel more at home with people in your political party than you do with other Christians that you might meet at a party. How does Jesus change you? He might move you more toward, toward the middle. He really might move, uh, make you more moderate. You see, in any case, Jesus always changes people. Jesus is always transforming his people. He's on the move. Are you moving because you're so moved? Maybe it's this direction, that direction. But whatever case it is, would your politics be any different if you didn't follow Jesus? Or can you account for and explain how your politics is changing and becoming different because you do follow Jesus? Above all, that he is the king of kings. He is transcendent. He is the only true wise God. His kingdom is the only one that can reconcile and bring everlasting healing and life for all. Does your politics reflect that your ultimate trust and worship and allegiance is to him, that he has your heart? 
And if this be true, oh, I do repent and pray with you. The witness. Oh, and the political interactions that Christian people do, even in his own name, will become something more winsome, more true. Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That begins with you. That begins with me. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ. (laughs) And he just blows us away. Not only his mind, not only his answers, but what he ended up doing upon a cross. How he gave himself away for the most proud, the most wicked, the most who are at enmity with you. And you laid down your life so that others might have your life. Oh, Lord, I pray that this would transform everything. Everything. Especially how we do politics. Inside out from the heart. Hear us, we pray. Oh, Lord, may your church represent a little better, a more humble and beautiful witness that indeed Jesus is our King. We pray in his name. Amen.